Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, we are going to continue our way through this fabulous Gospel. And as we do so, uh, I want you to know that, um, haven't you noticed that when you actually understand something, it takes on a whole new level of significance? There's a whole new level of appreciation, for instance, like when you're at an art museum and you actually have a docent, you know, someone that actually understands the art, their history, the background, and tell you about the different pieces, its significance. When someone explains that to you, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's just not a piece of art. Like, wow, that is something. And to understand it. But you have to have someone explain it to you. Or for instance, when you look at like Van Gogh's Starry Night, you know, to understand like what you're actually seeing and how it came about. Or for instance, like if you're looking at uh, Michelangelo's fresco of the creation of Adam, to understand all that went into that, all of a sudden you have a high level of appreciation. The same could be said about like engineering marvels, like how an airplane flies. I mean, have you ever thought about that? How does tons of steel actually fly in the air, carry people from, like, Dallas to New York? Or when you look at skyscrapers or the Hoover Dam or colossal bridges like the Golden Gate Bridge, like, it's one thing like, yeah, there's a bridge or there's an airplane, but then to understand that all that went into it and how that actually works. Or when you look at, like, key events in the United States, like our... Independence and the War of Independence, or like what we're looking at this weekend, 9-11, to understand the significance of what has taken place and what that means for all of us today. You know, so for many people, they have some sort of vague understanding about a lot of these events. It's not that they're totally oblivious to it. It's just that they are superficially familiar. You know, the same could be said oftentimes for communion. Most people, even non-Christians, are, have some understanding of communion. They could give you some sort of answer. They could, like, recognize that. Even a lot of Christians have partaken in communion, gone through it, but they don't really have a real deep understanding or really understand its origins. And that's really the shame, because until you actually understand its origins, where it came from, what it means, who gave it to us, why, you won't really experience the full significance of what we're partaking in. And if you're going to understand the significance of communion, we've got to go back to when it was established, its origins, going back to that final Passover that Jesus celebrated with the apostles. So if you remember, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we saw even last week, they had come to this Passover, the final Passover, that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples uh, right before, just hours before, he would go to the cross. And it was filled with significance. The Passover meal, every part of it was all planned out, and it had it portrayed some great symbolism. So for instance, they would have salt water that they would taste and remind them of the tears of being into slavery. Or those bitter herbs that they would eat, speaking of just how bitter it was to be in bondage in Egypt. And they would have like the heroset, you know, that paste. And it was, they would have it, it would remind them of the mortar and the bricks that they laid as they had this paste of sour and just kind of crushed fruit. And then, of course, there was the lamb, the roasted lamb that they would have. And that lamb reminded them that God literally 
had the angel of death pass over the homes that had been marked out with the blood placed on the doorpost and the lintel of each house that took God at his word that the angel of death would pass over and your firstborn wouldn't die if you trusted me and did as I said, followed my word. And then, of course, there was the unleavened bread, the matzah, the bread that had no leaven, for leaven spoke of sin and worldliness, corruption. All of that had been moved away. You had bread that was unleavened, and it was also a bread that was fit for traveling long distances. It reminded them that we are to have no sin in our life, no corruption, and we need to be a people ready to move. That's what was celebrated at Passover. And then, of course, there was the four cups of wine. All of this was very symbolic and represented the journey that God took his people on, especially that deliverance that is celebrated at Passover. And for 1,500 years, the Jewish people celebrated the Passover. It was their day of independence, and there was so much in it. It was at this final Passover that Jesus is having with his disciples that he introduces what it means to experience and know him in communion. Now, just at this point, we don't know exactly where we're at in the meal, but from the various gospel accounts that record this, it's somewhere at the point where they're even like having the roasted lamb or, or maybe right before, but somewhere in this. And Judas is no longer with them. Uh, remember what Jesus said in John 13, verse 27, after identifying, saying, one of you is going to betray me and actually handing a piece to Judas, he said this, what you do, do quickly. Now, many of the disciples thought that Jesus is telling Judas, like, hey, you're in charge of all the money. You're, right? You're our treasurer. And it was at Passover that you would give gifts to the poor. And they were thinking, like, well, that's probably, Judas is the key guy, you know? It's probably what he's doing. But Jesus is about to introduce something that is extremely important, highly significant. It's communion. And why is communion so significant to Christians. Well, the text we're going to look at today, and this is such a good one, Mark 14, beginning in verse 22, tells us why. And the first thing I want you to see is that communion portrays Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the Passover's completion. So let's take a look here. So beginning in verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, take it, this is my body. So this would be all normal. You have a presider who would be explaining all the different elements and what was taking place in the Passover, bringing people into the experience. But now Jesus does something that's very different. This is totally off script. This had never happened in 1,500 years. Jesus takes this bread, and like the text says, he blesses, so he's giving thanks, expressing gratitude to God, he gives a blessing, he broke it, he gave it to them, and then he made this statement, take it, this is my body. All of the disciples, the 11 that remained, they're like, whoa. This was very reminiscent of like in John 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But now he's taking this unleavened bread, he's breaking it, and he's passing it on to the disciples. Now, the unleavened bread spoke of their hasty departure out of Egypt, 
but also spoke that there was to be no leaven. Leaven symbolizing worldliness, sin, idolatry, to be completely removed, no leaven anywhere. And that's what they would talk about when they had this unleavened bread. But now Jesus said, this is my body. Jesus would say this in Aramaic, and in Aramaic it could be is or represents. It would be rather ambiguous. And so he says, this is my body. But now think of it from the position of the disciples. You need to understand what is the authorial intent. What is Jesus communicating to his disciples? Now, I would say that they understand he's using figurative language because he says, this is my body, but his body, he's standing right there, or he's, or he's kind of laying down presenting this. He says, this is my body. And Jesus used figurative language on a variety of occasions. Like he said, I am the door. Do you remember that? Or like that's in John 10. Or Jesus said in like John 15, I am the vine. They understood that he's not, he's not actually like a door with hinges or an actual organic vine, but this is a metaphor. He is using symbolic language. And he says, this is my body And he says, take it. And he has all of them eat it. Now, when he presents this bread to him and he's breaking it, this isn't signifying the kind of death he's going to die because actually none of his bones were broken. But what he's signifying is that there is going to be a death and he is going to die, but he wants something done in memory, symbolic, representative of him, and that all of them are to share in this experience. So there's, first of all, this bread. And all of the disciples know that something very significant is taking place when Jesus does this. But then, look at verse 23. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. So you could have just like heard a pin drop when he talked about the body. But now he takes this cup this cup of wine, and he makes this statement, this is my blood, he says in verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now, let me give you a little bit of explanation of what's going on here. So first of all, notice Jesus again gives thanks, okay? The Greek word there is euharisto, Perhaps you've heard it's pronounced Eucharist, okay? It's a word that's really been kind of hijacked by the Roman Catholics. They have commandeered and really changed its meaning. And so most people, when they hear the word Eucharist, they're thinking of this wafer, okay? But it's actually, the word means given thanks, to give thanks. It's from that verb. And what, when Jesus is doing then is he's got these cups of wine. Remember I told you there are four cups of wine that were actually used in the Passover, okay? So they had wine, it was mixed with water, they would have a cup, and the presider would then explain what's going on, take a sip, and they would pass it on to everyone around there. They're eating in family units, oftentimes two families together. Here you have the 11 remaining disciples, and Jesus gives thanks, and then he actually... He tells them this, they all drank from it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So there are four cups of wine, 
And it's, this is really fascinating. Each cup is associated with a promise that is found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So the first cup of the wine represented their rescue from Egypt. The second one represented their freedom from slavery. The third cup of the wine, referred to as the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, was what they drank third. It is believed this is where Jesus then has this third cup of wine. And the fourth cup is the cup of a renewed relationship and fellowship with God. It's believed that it's at this third cup, the cup of redemption, or the cup of blessing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it's referred to, this third cup, as the cup of blessing. Jesus makes this just radical statement in verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Matthew, in his record of this, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, he said that the reason for Christ's blood that it had to be shed was for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is making this statement, and they are listening and taking in every word when he says this. Now, they understood that sacrificial animals symbolized the fact that you had to have an innocent substitute in order to satisfy God's divine wrath, okay? That was built in. They understood that. And so like all of their sacrifices, they would bring an innocent animal that would be sacrificed on their behalf. All of this is picturing a perfect sacrifice, one who would be truly man, fully God, who would actually pay the penalty for their sins. So like, for instance, they understood like um, the Mosaic covenant, you know, when it was established, there was blood that was sacrificed. There was animals that were sacrificed, blood that was spread, And now with the beginning, here with Jesus, he is now speaking of blood, but the blood of his covenant. Now, that's telling us that for God, in order for for us to experience authentic, genuine relationship with him, there has to be a perfect substitute in our place. And Jesus is presenting himself as just that, the one who is going to shed his blood on our behalf. And that means that these sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament are no longer going to be necessary because Jesus is the completion of what the Passover is presenting and portraying. And they're understanding this, and Jesus is presenting this to them. So significant is this, that you remember that when Jesus does die, there is this great veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, From the very top of this massive curtain, this veil, it's torn, it's rent in two, signifying that entrance into the Holy of Holies, entrance into relationship with the living God, has now been complete by the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, just like Jesus said, the temple, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. Remember when they were looking at the temple? And that happened in AD 70. It signified, and that brought about the end of all of the sacrifices. All of this is in keeping with what Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, you need to know that uh, when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, 
and establishing communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, these are different terms used for this, that there has been and continues to be a variety of different views as to what Jesus is really talking about. And I'd like to present the most common ones. The first one, and perhaps the one that's kind of on the foremost of your mind, is what the Roman Catholics and how they practice this. They literally believe that the, the, the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and that the wine actually becomes the literal blood of Jesus. And so they have, it's called a sacrament, and they are kind of having the re-crucifying of Christ every Sunday. It's happening every, you know, like today, in thousands and thousands of Catholic churches, and there are millions and millions of people that believe that there is an event that takes place through this re-sacrificing of Christ where that bread and that wine is actually going to become the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. Now, I want you to know that the disciples, though, would have never understood it as such. Clearly, they could see when Jesus is speaking of his body, they see his body right there. They understand that this is a symbol. They most certainly would understood it as such. And furthermore, the whole idea that you've got to have a re-sacrificing of Christ, or you've got to again have his body and his blood, well, that then speaks against the fact that Christ's death was the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, like it's referred to in Hebrews chapter 9. Remember what Jesus said right before he dies? It is finished. But to have a re-sacrifice of Christ, well, that would actually speak against the very final words that Jesus gave right before he dies. So you've got this, you have the bread that the Roman Catholics believe, and this doctrine is called the doctrine of transubstantiation. They believe that the bread becomes the body of Jesus. And they actually say that this is the body of Jesus, and many people think that's actually what it is. But then there's the statement about the blood, that they say that the wine has now become the blood of Jesus. Now, the disciples, I can assure you, never thought that it was his literal blood. And let me, let's just kind of talk this through a little bit here. First of all, there was nothing more repulsive or more abhorrent in the Jewish mind than the ingestion of blood. Eating and drinking blood was extremely, explicitly forbidden. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14. The Jews never, ever actually would ingest blood. In fact, have you heard of like kosher meats? Does anybody know what kosher meats? You've heard of it, right? Does anybody know what it actually means though, when it's kosher? It means that there is actually no blood whatsoever. It's a process to remove any trace of blood. Why is that? Because for the Jews, ingesting any sort of blood, well, that would be just kind of like the absolute worst. They would be revolting to them. And it's interesting uh, that when the early church gets started, you remember in Acts chapter 15, they write a letter to these new believers that come from Gentile backgrounds, and they write a letter of telling them there's just a few things you want to avoid. One of the things that they are to avoid, if you remember in Acts chapter 15, verse 20, is that they were to abstain from consuming blood, abstain from blood. Why? Why? because it is abhorrent to the Jews. 
Now, when that letter, which was widely circulated around the Roman Empire to the believers, if believers in Jesus, the apostles and the original disciples, the early church, if they believed that the wine was actually the blood of Jesus when they celebrated a communion, that letter would have been written differently. They would have actually included a statement about this so there'd be no confusion in their communion. But that's not what happened because that's not how they understood it. So that's what the Roman Catholics believe, transubstantiation. Then you've got Eastern Orthodox um, believers, and their communion practice is extremely similar. In fact, they believe pretty much the exact same thing. They just don't want to use the word transubstantiation, in part to differentiate themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. Then you have the Lutherans. So you have like Martin Luther. He is a Catholic priest, Catholic scholar, and he sees that, well, they're we're off. You know, now that he's really studying the Bible, he's like, hey, we're off on some of these things. And he's trying to bring reform, to bring changes, improvements where we've gotten off. But so the Lutherans, what do they believe about communion? And this was something that Martin Luther was really trying to work on. He's coming from his Catholic background. So this is what Lutherans hold. They believe that it's that the literal body and blood of Christ are present. And these are their key words, quote, in with and under the bread and wine, okay? The bread and wine aren't actually the body and blood of Christ, but Christ is like everywhere around. So to give you like the best illustration I can of this, think of like a sponge and a sponge taking in water. So if the sponge represents Christ, uh, excuse me, the sponge, the, the water represents like Christ, excuse me, that's what I meant to say. And the sponge, they would say, is like, well, the sponge isn't actually Jesus, but everything around it, just like the water is absorbed by the sponge, that's what's taking place there. So that's what the Lutherans believe. Now then you also have some Anglicans, and they think that there is the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine. And then you have all the other Protestants, and they believe that it's symbolic, okay? That this is a, this bread and wine, they're symbols, and furthermore, um, they, many of them believe that Christ is spiritually present. So that when believers gather together and have communion, that Christ who is present, this is spiritually nourishing to their soul. This is a meaningful event in the life of a church. So that's what we've got here. Now, I want you to know that I clearly, firmly think that Jesus was intending for them to understand that this is symbolic. And Jesus himself, like as recorded in Luke, when he writes of this, he makes this statement where he says, this is given to you, do this in remembrance of me. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, like in verse 24. But like in Luke 22, verse 19, you've got this situation where Jesus makes the presentation, and this is what he says. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And that word remember, it's not just, well, I recall to mind. Remember has the idea that you engage and recapture as much as possible the experience. That's what the Passover did. You'd engage, you'd recall as much as possible the experience. And that's what communion is to be, 
to engage as much as possible into that experience where Jesus gave us communion, this representation of his body and his blood in the bread and the wine. The Passover was picturing ahead, a portraying a perfect sacrifice. Communion is looking back at that perfect sacrifice, that great accomplishment that Jesus did for us. So why is communion so significant to Christians? Well, first of all, it portrays Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the Passover's completeness. But let me give you a second reason. It presents the eternal blessings of the new covenant. Look at verse 24 again. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It's very significant that Jesus establishes in the midst of the final Passover, the new covenant. And so he's expressing that this old covenant and their ceremonial elements that pertain to it, why that's now being replaced by the new covenant, which is absolutely eternal and will never pass away. The new covenant, like it's spoken of in Jeremiah 31, like in verses uh, 31 through 34, or Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, speaks of forgiveness of sin, this new fellowship with God, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and where God is literally going to write his words on the hearts of those who believe. This is this new covenant that God is going to establish. And when you hear the word covenant, you oftentimes think, well, well it's two parties, and they come to an agreement. And they, they make an agreement. So like marriage, for instance, is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. But the word covenant that's actually used here is a covenant in which there's only one party that does all the work, namely God. God is the one who has establishes the covenant. He does everything to make that covenant work, and you either accept it in whole or reject it. But there is nothing that you can do. You can't earn it. It's not like, well, this is between God and me, and we're going to make this work. You bring nothing to the table. Christ provides everything. He's the sacrifice for sin once for all. He provides the forgiveness. He is perfect. He is righteous. And he provides everything that is needed for this covenant to work. We either receive this by faith or we reject it. And that's what you find here. And that's what you see in verse 24. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Remember when John the Baptist pointed out and he says, he saw Jesus coming in John one twenty nine, And Jesus is coming to him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. He is the perfect Lamb. He is the one that can enact the new covenant. And notice something else there in verse 24. Did you see how this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many? You see that? Speaking of both those who believe from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds. Jesus made this same statement at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for Many, many people. He's establishing the new covenant that's going to be a blessing for Jewish believers and Gentile believers for many. And so that's what we have at the Lord's table. 
When we come to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion, it is remembering that Jesus has established the new covenant. It's a covenant that he provides solely. He does all the work. We literally are the recipients by faith. So why is communion so significant for Christians? Well, just like we see here, it presents the eternal blessings of the new covenant. And there's one other reason, and that is this. It promises Christ's second coming and our future joy in his kingdom. Take a look at these final two verses. Jesus says this, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom, when I will drink it anew. So one thing I want to point out there is, you know, Jesus has just established communion. How does he refer to the cup of wine? Does he refer to it as his blood? What does the text say? No? He refers to it as the fruit of the vine. He says, and I'm going to actually drink of that fruit. If Jesus intended us to understand that it was his literal blood, well, that would be him saying that I'm going to actually ingest my own blood. That doesn't even make any sense, right? Certainly, they understood this as symbolic. But this is pointing out to the reality that Christ is going to be alive that Jesus is going to, again, be celebrating this drinking of this wine. Perhaps it means that in the millennial kingdom, in God's kingdom, that there is going to be communion. It's likely, though, that there is going to be the celebration of Passover, where they are actually looking at the events of the Passover and how Christ is the fulfillment. We see this in Ezekiel chapters 43 through 45. Where they're talking about certain commemorative sacrifices that are going to feature in the millennial kingdom that you see like in Revelation 20, 1 through 7. And in this kingdom, there are going to be these memorial sacrifices, the sacrifices that we saw in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ. Now they're going to be looking back to Jesus and his sacrifice. And Jesus says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until we do it again in the kingdom of God. It reassured them that he is going to return and that there is going to be this celebration in God's glorious kingdom. And so we see right after that, verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. One of the things that they would do in the Passover as they sung the Hallel, the praise psalm, Psalms 113 through 118. The final psalm that's saying, 118, had statements like this. I want you to picture Jesus and the disciples singing this hymn, Psalm 118. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's found like verse 17 and verse 22. And there's this refrain, if you're familiar with Psalm 118, like you see it multiple times in verses 1 through 4 and at the very end in verse 29. And it says this, about the loving kindness of God is everlasting. His loving kindness never ends. His loyal love, and they're singing this. And so from there, they will leave uh, we know from like John 13 through 18 that Jesus gave them a lot of information. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's probably about like 11, maybe even midnight, 
when they leave this Passover and they descend into the Kidron Valley and climb up the hill, it's about a half-hour walk, to Gethsemane, where Jesus will be praying in earnest that God's will will be done. And Judas is just about ready to act on his betrayal. And yet, right before all of this happens, Jesus gives us this one culminating practice called communion. And so you want to know, like, well, what did this look like in the early church? You don't have to guess. You want to know how the early church functioned, the first believers? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to the word of God and the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. That isn't just talking, but actually the encouragement in the faith and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The breaking of bread, it's, that's how they referred to communion. And what they would do is they would celebrate communion together. They tied it with actually having like a meal together, and then they would do communion. They referred to it, you find this in like Jude uh, verse 12, where it's referred to as these love feasts. And it would, the culminating event of that would be communion. And so here we have the Lord's table. We have communion. And when we come to communion, like we're going to do today, we do so remembering Jesus. We think of our sin. It's the whole reason why Christ has come. He's the one who has to redeem us through his blood. Otherwise, we're still very lost. When we come to communion, we think of our faith, our faith in him who died and rose again. When we come to communion, we think of our utter dependence upon Jesus. You know, from apart from him, we can do nothing. In fact, we are nothing. And when we come to the Lord's table, we do so with hope, knowing that he's coming back, that he's alive, that he's established the new covenant. He's done it all, and he's done it all for us, and we're just the amazing, blessed recipients of it. So if you want to make the most of communion, every time you and I have the privilege of coming together as believers for communion. Do so with humility before God. What you do is you realign yourself under his lordship. Do so being reminded that you're forgiven. Believe God no matter what you have done. If you have confessed your sin, you are forgiven by God. He's united us with him. I tell you what, that is so freeing to know and to be immersed in the love of God. And when you come to communion, recognize that this expresses our oneness in Christ. We come from a variety of backgrounds. I mean, just looking around here, I know that we have a a person that's been a believer for seven days who will have his first time ever being in communion. And we have folks that have been walking with God for decades, but we come as one body, one in Christ. This table, the communion, this isn't where we find Jesus. Communion is the celebration that Jesus has found us, and he's everything to us. Communion is at the heart of our union with Christ. Remember how we began? We talked about some significant events, and that the more you understand them, why the more meaningful they become. Let me give you another significant event. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with it. 
It's when the Americans landed two men on the moon, July 20th, 1969, on that Sunday. And you're familiar with it because we like, oh yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, it's Neil Armstrong, first man to ever step foot on the moon. And he made that statement, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah, we remember that. That lunar module landed and eventually Neil Armstrong and another man, Buzz Aldrin, climbed out. They walked the face of the moon. They actually picked up rocks from the moon and they eventually came back. We're all very familiar with this, but what we're not very familiar with is what happened at the very beginning. What happened at the very beginning when the lunar module landed? Well, let me tell you what happened. Buzz Aldrin, he was the pilot for that lunar module when it set down. And once the, the lunar module set down, uh, this was all planned, Buzz Aldrin, a very strongly committed Christian, representing many at NASA who were strong believers in Christ and felt that they were actually on a mission to actually land a man on the moon and that God was leading them. Well, this was all planned, and this is how this was all to begin. Buzz Aldrin took out a cup, a small chalice that he had received from his church, and a small communion wafer. And he made then, as he set this on this table, he made this statement. And this is what the transmission, the radio transmission to the Houston Space Center. This is the lunar module pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. So with a watching world, they, they heard this statement. But then what happened next is that NASA decided that they would black it out and all transmission would be blacked out for what was about to happen next. They blacked it out in a large part because they had a lawsuit against them. When, when they had the Apollo 8 mission, some of the astronauts were reading and quoting verses from the book of Genesis. And that raised the ire of atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare, who filed a lawsuit against NASA. That lawsuit was eventually dropped. So the lunar module landed, the communion elements were set, and then the broadcast and the transmission went black. And then Buzz Aldrin said this, and he quoted John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he actually partook in communion, the very first event when men landed on the moon was this, communion. Buzz Aldrin, reflecting on this, said this, quote, In the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained bread and wine. I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In fact, there's a picture of it right there. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. It was interesting to think 
that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were communion elements. So friends, let us remember that apart from Jesus, we are nothing. His life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, why it's everything to us. And when we celebrate communion, we celebrate him who's our life and our Lord. For communion is at the heart of our union with Christ. So what we're going to do now is we're going to actually partake in communion. Having seen its significance, we are actually going to experience this together. So let me lead us before we partake in a time of prayer. So let's just bow our heads.